Democracy, a word derived from the Greek roots demos, meaning people, and kratia, meaning power. Together, people power. Democracy is viewed as an ideology, a governmental system, or in the words of late civil rights activist John Lewis, not as a state, but as an act for each generation to do its part. In a democracy, the people live under the laws of their choosing. By consenting to follow those laws or acting to change them, the people's rights and freedoms are protected. To many, democracy is the sacred foundation of America. To engage in civic duty, participate in elections, and consent to policy is what it means to be an American. For these people, the words United States and democracy are nearly synonyms. To others, American democracy is not, has never been, and likely never will be. For them, the phrase United States democracy is a contradiction. I'm Noura Ahmed. And I'm Eliza Craig. And this is Democracy, a podcast from Themester. Today we're talking to Dr. Timpson, a professor in the English department where she teaches in the Communications and Public Advocacy program. She teaches classes on feminist rhetoric, social movements, argumentation, and public advocacy. Her research focuses on populist and economic inequality rhetoric. In this episode, we discuss how language can be weaponized to disenfranchise minorities, but how it can also be used to mobilize the masses to create social change. So what is rhetoric? Most people define rhetoric as the art of persuasion. So it's been studied for thousands of years, starting with Aristotle. And, you know, one of the central questions in studying rhetoric has always been, are some forms of persuasion more ethical than others? You know, can we really say that this form of persuasion or this form of, of public speech is an ethical one? I mean, obviously there's a distinction to be made between lying and telling the truth when you're persuading, but then also, is it more ethical to use reason or emotion? And is emotional persuasion something that we can embrace in the public sphere? And it's a tricky question when it comes to rhetoric because, you know, emotion is what gets people engaged, right? Emotion helps people care about whatever is being talked about, whatever kind of political speech is happening. But there also always feels like there's the the kind of opportunity for manipulation and abuse. And so it's very hard to have good political speech that isn't emotional in some way. But then when it is, sometimes people will judge it for being too emotional. And so, you know, should emotions be expressed in a tactical way or a really raw way? And those are kind of some tricky questions that come up in the study of rhetoric in the broadest terms. So it's kind of like just presenting facts and figures at people about poverty versus bringing in testimonials about people who live in poverty. Yeah, first person narratives, things like that. Yeah, we tend to grab people's attention, be more accessible. People can identify with the real human as opposed to the data, which is maybe more accurate in some way and can give a clearer picture of some things, but like you say, it's going to have a limited impact. When is rhetoric the most powerful? Rhetoric is always powerful in its good forms and its bad forms, and sometimes hard to tell the difference. I mean, Aristotle's original definition of rhetoric was sort of the available means of persuasion that get mobilized in the absence of knowing exactly what to do. So sometimes the sort of policy course is very clear. Everyone knows what the best idea is, but sometimes we have to act in the face of uncertain and incomplete information. So for instance, like the pandemic, people are trying to figure out what to do all the time without really knowing what the best 
best courses. And so you have to persuade people. You have to kind of mobilize the best reasons that you can come up with in order to figure out what, what needs to happen next. And, and I think that that's, that's what politics is a lot of the time. It's figuring out what to do in the absence of any clear course. And so people have to persuade each other. And that's not a science. It's an art. Could you talk a little bit about the origins of rhetoric and their relation to democratic ideals? Yeah, that's a big question. You know, I mean, people, a lot of people like to point at ancient Greece as the origin of democracy, of democratic practice, because the ancient Greeks really pioneered a lot of practices of collective self-rule. Of course, their form of collective self-rule, their form of democracy excluded a lot of people. It excluded women. They held slaves. There were a lot of people in ancient Greek society that were not allowed to participate in politics. It was mostly just land-owning men who participated in democratic politics in Greece. And so I think it's important to not idealize that kind of early great version of democracy. But it's also important, I think, to, to note that like the founders of the U.S. weren't particularly excited about democracy either. They, they didn't see the government that, of the United States as being fundamentally democratic. They saw it as being a Republican government, also with you know wealthy land-owning men doing most of the work of governance. So you, a rhetoric expert, likely see rhetoric as vital to democracy or no? Yeah, there's no getting away from it. Kind of because what I was saying before, which is, you know, like sometimes we have to act in the face of uncertain information. And there's no pure information to tell us what to do all the time. The government is always a negotiation between different perspectives and acting in the face of uncertain information. And so rhetoric is unavoidable. And it can't be boiled down to just the most reasonable or the most true argument. It's always kind of a process of drawing people in and making them care while you at the same time create with them a vision of what's possible. In what ways does rhetoric preserve democratic values? I do really think that democracy is a matter of dissent. A lot of people really, really believe that democracy is a form of government. So like people who are voting, selecting their leaders by free and accessible open elections, that's a democracy. And I think that that form of government is a good one. And it's, it's good to have people choosing their leaders. But I think that when you really see democracy at work, it's usually in the middle of kind of like a crisis or a big upheaval. People are really literally trying hard and like in a mass way are getting involved in ways that go way beyond just voting in elections. I think that's what democratic politics really looks when you have that sense of like, we don't really know what to do here and we don't really know what's going to happen. And so we're all going to get involved and weigh in because if we don't, the result is going to be bad. And very often that looks like people saying the people we've elected aren't getting it done. There's a problem here that's much bigger than our current government can handle. And so we need a different kind of mass mobilization. For me, easily identifiable as democracy. So social movements are a great example of that. Sometimes social movements are working hard to get people elected or to influence people who've been elected. And th that work is really important. But sometimes it's a matter of like really trying to just change the way to think about society and values and deeper issues and like how things are structured and how goods and resources are distributed and you know to really like raise consciousness to change culture to have an impact on how people live especially in the 20th and 21st century that work has been really central to what social movements do and it goes well beyond just kind of trying to get the right case in front of the supreme court or trying to get the right president in office when things get a little too much into like the facts and the figures and talk about this pie chart, how that kind of excludes people and how leaning more into the testimonials of rhetoric is more persuasive and can include more people, but it might be more dishonest. 
I think your intuition on that is exactly right. That if you see experts as the people who are most qualified to govern, then all of the data, all of the facts, sure, the experts can kind of handle those things and figure out what to do. But if you're going to have real rule by the people, if the people are going to rule themselves, if there's going to be mass participation in government where people have a say in their own destiny, then you have to figure out how to get people involved, which means, like you say, just having forms of persuasion that are more accessible, that are more relatable, figuring out how to turn that data into something that means something to people, even if they don't have that expert background. I think that that's that's a great point. There's an argument implicit in what you're saying that I agree with and I think is really important. I think that right now, one of the terms that is used to explain political rhetoric or to identify good political rhetoric, I guess, is something like civility. People are really worried about something like polarization in politics. And so they say, oh, everyone needs to be more civil to each other. So in addition to politics being more informed by expert knowledge, we'll say, well, we all need to be more polite. We need to be more respectful, civil, etc." And I think that that way of formulating political rhetoric, it's very often used to exclude people as well. People who are in passion, people who are angry, people who are really concerned about injustice. Oh, they're not being civil. They're aiding station. That's another kind of way of framing political rhetoric that can be exclusionary and leave people out. That kind of reminds me of the Colin Kaepernick kneeling and then that people are like, that's so disrespectful. And now with the current protests, we're like, why can't they do this quietly and respectfully? So it kind of seems like that discourse around civility can never be met, that it's never something that you can win at and it just excludes certain conversations. Exactly. The Colin Kaepernick example is a perfect example of sort of saying, well, you know, no matter what it is that people do, that idea of the civil and the uncivil, the respectful and the accessible forms of political speech can always be mobilized to sort of delegitimize people who are, you know, engaging in forms of political speech that have long histories and have been very effective and important at many points in the past in the U.S. and all over the world. So I think that's a great example. How does political rhetoric create hysteria? You know, hysteria is a tricky word. The etymology of the word is closely tied to hysterectomy, right? This identification of feminine anatomy. So there's this idea that like hysteria is this like uncontrolled feminine emotion. There's a set of gender connotations. So, you know, to call something hysterical brings in those connotations, just like a woman out of control. Do you know what I mean? But at the same time, the connection between political rhetoric and that kind of uncontrolled emotional expression and social media. Mm -hmm. And I think those things are connected in an important way because okay. a lot of what we've seen in the transformation of the the news environment is the kind of like clickbaitification of the news. And so headlines are increasingly sensational. People increasingly scroll through headlines without reading the substance of news articles. And so I think that the way that social media creates these sort of niche markets where people are just kind of consuming opinions that they already agree with in ways that are sort of like self-gratifying the shell ways, right? So I'm going to follow people who I agree with. I'm going to read the headlines that I agree with. I'm going to use the news to confirm the beliefs that I already have and make me feel more self-righteous about the beliefs that I already have. And we're all guilty of this on some level. People will talk about echo chambers. There's one way to talk about it, but it's important to be aware of that as a dynamic. You know, I don't necessarily advise people like my students to go out and start reading Breitbart or something just to get like a balanced opinion. I don't, you know, I wouldn't go that far, but I do think it's important to sort of seek out longer, more complicated forms of journalism and engage in like a deeper explanation of the issues and that aren't just trying to get you to like them and recirculate them because the headlines say something in a snarky way. 
So I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the way that media consumption and news consumption has changed and the connotations that that holds. I think that you're saying exactly the situation, which is that news consumption, it happens almost entirely online. And some people will subscribe to a specific news production agency or, you know, what might have formerly been a newspaper, something that might be called a blog, whatever, and they'll get their news. They have some kind of like identification, like loyalty to that news agency. But a lot of the times we're just getting whatever our friends repost, right? And there's that filter of, you know, who are we friends with? Who's following us or who are we following? So we're already kind of opting into the sensibilities of people who are like us, people who agree with us. But I think the kind of backdrop for all of that is the way that news media have been consolidated. There's been a few big agencies that have purchased most of, for instance, the local newspapers in the country. And so it's really hard to get local news. It's something that everybody's feeling right now. We all kind of want to know what's happening in our area, like what you know, what are the infection rates? Like what is the government doing right around here? And it's really hard to get that news because of how so many local newspapers have been they're kind of swept up into bigger agencies. And traditionally, newspapers haven't really been very profitable. And certainly television news was never designed to be profitable. It used to it used to operate at a loss. So like the big news agencies, NBC, CBS, kind of legacy news agencies used to run their news agencies at a loss. The news agency was never expected to make a profit. It was it was a prestige business. It was like, yeah, we make enough money on entertainment so that we can provide this public service. And of course, now news has been totally reconceptualized as something that's more enmeshed in entertainment and is supposed to be profitable in its own terms. Some people are in the process of rethinking that and buying newspapers and different kinds of news production companies with other motivations other than, you know, figuring out how to make them profitable. And so there's a, you know, maybe a shift back to that kind of idea of owning a newspaper as a matter of a public service and for prestige rather than for money. So Dr. Timpson, how can political rhetoric be weaponized with dog whistles like Super Predator and Welfare Queen? Here again, your question is saying it already. I think that those are really good terms to bring attention to. And we have, especially with like a term like a welfare queen, decades of really insightful African-Americanist scholarship on where that term came from and, and what some of the problems with it are. Also how its racial connotations really fundamentally misrepresent the nature of welfare in the United States. I mean, most people who receive what, what we think of as welfare benefits, public assistance and various kinds, most of them are white. And the vast majority of them are white. It's, you know, like African-American women receive very few of, of those benefits. And so I think a concept like that and the way that it can be unpacked has revealed a lot of those biases and assumptions. But the whole idea of like a dog whistle is a concept that I've like kind of struggled with a little bit because I feel like there's so much political language that works that way that's used by the right and the left that, you know, where it's like you hear a certain term and you can already sort of kind of draw out what the assumptions are of the people who are making it. And so the real problem comes when terms like that are supposed to be value neutral and then the accusation is, well, the other people's terms are not value neutral, right? Like they're biased, but our language is mm. neutral. And I think that when the right criticizes the left, it comes in this context, it comes in terms of like a critique, like something like political correctness, right? Is one way of like, yeah. oh, that's just political correctness to use that language. And I think one of the things that activists on the left and commentators on the left are a little bit more honest about is they're like, no, we're picking these words for a reason. Like we're not going to pretend that they are, you know, the most true, the most 
most accurate, the most like transparent or value neutral. Our values are in the words and we want to claim that. And we're picking these words because of their values, not to sort of pretend that the, that the words don't have values. And so if, like take, for instance, like, like recent, um, it's like hard to talk about without already using the words, but like the difference between using the word riot versus protest in describing like what has been going on in, in the cities in the U.S. and things like, what is it? You know, and sometimes you'll see a newspaper use the word unrest, right? It's just sort of like some trying to be value neutral or whatever, but most people are going to say riots or they're going to say protest. There's a whole set of assumptions about what's going on there that are built into it or like illegal aliens versus undocumented immigrants, you know? So people who are very critical of immigration policy or critical of immigrants are going to say illegal aliens. They really want to exclude people. They don't want anyone coming in from outside the country. They want to demonize those people and make all kinds of claims about what they do to us that of this distinction between us and them. There's not that recognition that like, there's something about the values that underlie this word choice that I'm going to defend. Whereas if somebody says undocumented immigrant, they're 10 times more likely to be like, no, I'm choosing these words for a reason. And I don't want to say illegal alien. I think this is better terminology. It's not because it's more accurate. It's because it really reflects the values that I think everyone can get behind. And I guess the whole idea of a dog whistle is that only the people who kind of are in the know can hear it or, you know, that there's something invisible about it. But I think, I'm not sure that that's actually the case. Like, I think that most people, when they hear a term like super predator or welfare queen, they, then they're like, oh, that's not invisible. Like, that's telling me where you're coming from and whether I agree with you or don't. And, you know, I think a lot that gets communicated that's not below the surface. It's like kind of above the surface at this point. Like people, people, people are looking for those signs and signals. Everybody is. I was wondering if there's sort of any historical social movements, maybe related to the feminist cause, where a certain phrase or a certain rhetoric that has become symbolic of a cause has shifted a public understanding. In terms of feminist politics, I think the whole idea of the personal is political has had a big impact on not just feminism, but a range of movement politics. That idea which is strongly associated with feminism. I don't think it can be totally divorced from Black liberation politics of the 60s too, which were definitely attuned to the way that people's personal experiences of racism and discrimination shaped the way that they were able to see and understand and engage in politics. You know, feminism and Black liberation politics have a very tight history in the 1960s and 70s, but nonetheless is associated with feminism. You know, that idea that how it is that you live and what your experiences of living with a certain identity and a set of experiences of social inequality are the best way to understand how political change needs to happen. That idea wasn't as powerful before that phrase, but ultimately when it comes to slogans like that, it's, it's hard to dissociate like all of the hard work that's done year after year, printing mailers, organizing meetings. I mean, it's hard to say, well, the slogan did it. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of really hard work by thousands and thousands of people that did it. And a lot of it, it wasn't visible the way that the slogan is something that you could say is visible. So I think it's a little hard to say, well, this, these words did this. I mean, like in the Occupy movement, you could say, you know, we are the 99%. And this idea of like the 99% is, I mean, obviously it's gotten a lot of traction, right? Like we're still see that kind of phrasing 
used to describe economic equality. It's kind of caught hold of our imaginations and the way that we are able to see these huge gaps in access to resources that are in our society. But I think to, to say, well, it's the words themselves versus all of the labor of all the people who have been working on the ground for years and in some cases decades to try to create change and get people together and learn from their past mistakes and learn from movement's history. And there's a lot there. So it is interesting that the association, the words come to have with the movements. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think that right now, when people use the word like a movement, like, oh, it's a movement, right? A lot of times what they're talking about is a hashtag. You know, when people say it's a movement, they're talking about Me Too or Black Lives Matter, right? Those hashtags as the movement is the hashtag. And hashtags are doing a tremendous amount of work to get people together and can kind of like consolidate and draw into conversation people with similar sentiments and concerns and to raise awareness and raise the profile of certain kinds of problems. And so hashtags are interesting development in movement politics. But as a scholar of social movements, I tend to think of a movement as something a little bit bigger and more long-term than a hashtag. I mean, we have 50, 60 years or 70 years of, of movement politics in some of these areas. And activists working right now are very much aware of, the, of their own history and all the people who come before them and who have learned lessons the hard way about what, what kinds of things work and what kinds of things don't work and how to fight different kinds of battles on the ground. And so I tend to think of the movement as the more kind of long-term historical group of activities that people really identify with when they're kind of deeper into the work. And the hashtags are an important part of that right now. But I think that sometimes when it's like, well, the Me Too movement, it's like, yeah, but there's a feminist movement that happened for quite a long time before that. And Me Too is, a, is an important part of that, super important. And social media, hashtag activism, it's really interesting. And it is really different than the forms of movement rhetoric that have come before. And I think it's totally appropriate to say, wow, what is this? How is it working? Because it really is something different, the types of tactics. It's, it's good to make note of what those differences are without losing sight of the, the kind of crusty perspective, well, we've been around for a while. <laughs> I think they're both, they're both needed. In your study, but also just experiencing of movements of the last decade, do you find that the hashtag activism is insubstantiated? There's this discussion now about performative activism on social media. Like I've noticed a lot of my peers who don't typically engage ideas of race posting about Black Lives Matter and then maybe moving on. Is there any part of hashtag activism that is just to make the individual feel self-righteous and then move on? it seems inevitable i guess that for some people that that's that's what it is for in a lot of instances there are certain moments when it becomes a problem like when white allies are trying to take credit for the work that people of color have done and be like oh yeah you know black lives matter and i'm gonna plan this thing without consulting any people of color i'm going to collect money for it even though other people are doing most of the work i'm gonna all kinds of ways in which the labor of people of color and black people and black activists is sort of sidelined by people who think that they can just like kind of swoop in and, and i suppose it's also the case that for a lot of people it's just like oh i guess this is trending right now i should do it too and that's all it. but that kind of gets into like a bigger set of questions about what the role that social media has in movement activism and there's there's a couple of schools of thought on it some people really believe that taking that step of advocating for things in social media is an important first step and that, it, that it's like the first rung on a ladder of engagement or something like if you do that first then you're more like 
likely to go do something else. Maybe you go to a meeting, maybe you contribute to planning a bigger event, maybe you donate money, maybe you get involved, right? And so it's just people that it's like a first step in a longer for some people. You know, obviously for some people also think that it kind of dissipates energy. So people care about an issue, they see the problem, they want to be involved and they're like, oh, I, I liked it and I reposted it and that's as far as it goes when and if they didn't have that outlet that then maybe they would have done more and all they get is that sense of like self-righteous fulfillment from it and instead of actually doing something that would be in the end more effective but the reality is that for some people it's one and for others it's the other and you can't make big generalizations and social media is definitely creating opportunities to raise awareness about issues in a, as part of a space that didn't exist before and i think we're you know we've yet to see like real fundamental changes and governmental structures as a result of raising that awareness and that might just be like we haven't gotten there yet but it's coming or it might be that people need to really rethink like how they're organizing in order to change more permanent structures and not just what people believe but where the power where the power really resides thanks so much to dr timpson for discussing rhetoric with us today the music for the intro and outro is moonrise by chad crouch provided by freemusicarchive.org under a non-commercial license. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Democracy, a podcast from The Master. <laughs>